Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. All right, everybody, please, if you could, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. As you're turning, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a senior at Liberty University. Um, I'm majoring in religious studies. I have four minors, actually. A minor in theology, apologetics, history, and Bible. So I'm trying to get it all done on time. And that's a challenge, but fingers crossed, we can do it. Um, I am also the author of a book called The Way Up Came Down. You can buy it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, shameless plug, right from the beginning. Um, I'm on radio and TV regularly with apologists such as Lee Strobel, Gary Harmes, Alex McFarland. I actually work for an apologetics organization as an intern. I'll be going to Myrtle Beach um, in the fall to speak with Frank Turek and other apologists about issues such as whether Jesus even existed in the first place um, and other issues pertaining to our culture such as critical race theory. So I'm excited for that um, and I'm excited to bring to you a message that has been near and dear in my heart. And let me be honest with you. There are people in Afghanistan on both sides who think they're doing God's will. Make no mistake, the Taliban believes that they are doing God's will. And the Christians believe they're doing God's will. Can they both be right? It is impossible for them both to be right. Only one is doing God's will. How do you know that it's not the Taliban? How do you know? I mean, they sure they think that they're doing a good thing for God, according to their holy book, right? We believe what we believe because we have the word of God, the Holy Bible, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And my friends, this passage is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after death, then it is a tragedy what's going on in Afghanistan. We should not be calling for Christians to throw away their lives for something that ultimately will not matter in eternity. That's a disgrace. But we believe in a resurrection. So if you will now stand at this time for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 1. Now I'd remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely unborn, unborn, excuse me, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. You may be seated. Now at this time, I want to paint a picture for you by telling you of a very familiar story. There is a mourner who is sitting outside an empty tomb in which the stone has been rolled away. And story is starting to spread fast. People are asking, has this person been raised from the dead? And people have gone in the tomb, they verified that the body is missing. And in no time, this story will pass down through the generations with thousands of people witnessing to the story and attesting to it. And of course, I'm talking about Koreas and Kalorhai. Koreas and Kalorhai was a very well-known Greek romance story and a tragedy that was very popular before the time of Jesus. 
And so some people wonder, did the gospel writers essentially make a, a fictional version of Koreas and Kalorhai? Did they take this version of an empty tomb and just make it into a narrative format? Now, as someone who studies the Bible and studies the background for the Bible, I think it is absurd to think that the gospel writers would base their work off of a fictional romance. That is absurd. But it is not absurd to think that there was copying on the other side, that people years after the gospel story went around would have heard the story of an empty tomb and would have written fictional accounts of that. That is more believable. But to believe that the gospel is based off of a romance tragedy is absurd as far as historicity goes. This is why I think what needs to be talked about when we're talking about the resurrection is the background, the historicity. If I say Jesus rose from the dead, that's not just a theological statement. That's a historical statement. That is something that happened in real time and in real history. So it's important to know what did the people believe at that time about resurrection? Was it something they looked forward to? Well, I'd like to talk first about the Greeks. If you remember in Romans 1.16, the Bible says that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Greeks. So what do Greeks think about resurrection? Some of you may be familiar with the Odyssey and the Iliad. Raise your hand if you're ever familiar with Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. All right. Got some fans of literature in here. Well, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad was considered about the same as the Old Testament to the Jews, for the Greeks. It was the Greek Old Testament, to say. And in Homer's Iliad, he tells a story about Achilles, many of you are probably familiar with. Achilles' best friend dies in battle, and Achilles is mourning his friend's loss and refuses to bury his friend. And one night, his friend appears to him in a vision. And Achilles reaches out and tries to embrace his friend. But his friend is only a phantom. His friend is not a body. His friend does not have all his wits about him. He is only a phantom. Also in the Odyssey, Odysseus undergoes a journey to the underworld in which he sees his mother and he sees long-lost friends. And when he tries to reach out and touch them, he touches nothing, for they are like ghosts. You see, the Greeks did not believe in a literal resurrection. In fact, they despised the very idea of a resurrection. And that's hard for us, because if I asked you today to imagine what heaven would be like and to picture yourself in it, you'd probably picture yourself in a body, right? That's how we see in the movies. Everybody has a body in heaven. The Greeks would have despised that thought. Now, why is that? Well, we get that from the Greek New Testament, as I call it, which is called the works of Plato. Plato believed that souls were trapped inside human bodies and that the goal of the soul was to escape the human body and return to heaven. Now, why would the Greeks want that? Well, firstly, many people are afraid of death. How many of you know that one day you will die? And so what if I came up with a story to tell you that death isn't really that bad, that death is just a doorway to something beautiful? Would you be as afraid of death? No, you'd think that death is something to be welcome. And so Plato taught that death is not something to be afraid of, that death is the doorway to eternal blessing in which our souls go back home. Because in the body, let's face it, this is going to die. Um, I suffer in this body, right? I have cramps, um, I bleed, I have pains. Um, my emotions are physically tied to my body. Um, there's a lot of sufferings that come with this body. And the Greeks despise that. And they could not wait for the day when they'd be free of their body. So if I went and I told the Greek during the time of the New Testament, good news. Not just when you die will you have a soul, but you'll also have a body forever. What do you think they'd think of me? 
Well, we know what they thought in Acts 17, verses 32. Paul goes to Athens, and Paul's preaching the message of the resurrection. And what happens? They say, come, we want to hear the story of the resurrection. Paul goes, he tells them it, and it says this in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. You would be looked at as stupid and as wicked for suggesting that I would stay in this body forever. Nobody wanted that. Nobody wanted to have an existence like that. So why was it that some people taught that that's how it was going to be? I mean, we know in marketing schemes that you tell something to somebody that they want to hear. That's how you sell something. But if nobody wants to hear about a resurrection, then why did they tell it? Well, I suggest we look at some more backgrounds to understand this question. Jesus was living during the time of the Romans, and the Romans were very famous for adopting Greek thought. How many of you know the Greek gods? Right? Do you know that the Romans just took those gods and renamed them? They liked Greek stuff that much. There was a knockoff. And so they adopted much of Greek thought, but they also added something else. They believed that their politicians actually came from heaven, which no matter what spectrum you are, liberal or conservative, I do not think that you believe that these politicians came from heaven, maybe the other place. But, but the Romans believed that the emperors and the statesmen came from heaven and that they graced us with their presence and they perform great work on earth and when they're done as a reward, they go back to heaven. No body, just a soul, forever and ever an eternal blessing. And so even the Romans despised the very thought of resurrection. There is actually only one background, only one major religion at the time of Jesus that would accept the notion of resurrection. You might have guessed it. It was the Jewish people. The Romans didn't like it. The Greeks didn't like it. Even the Egyptians with their mummies did not like the idea that they would have to return to this world. That's why they buried all their gold with them because they were taking it to the next one. They even killed their wife so their wife could come with them to the afterlife. They had no thought of returning to this life. They would despise the very notion of it. What's interesting, though, is if you look at the Jewish history, if you look at the Jewish Bible, we tend to understand in two different parts. We understand part of Judaism from before the Babylonian exile. A lot of things changed for the Jews with the fall of Jerusalem, with the destruction of the temple, and the theology changed. And, and that's the same for us. Um, remember 9-11. Our theology was much different about suffering before 9-11. But when 9-11, what happened? Our apologetics changed drastically, and you can see this if you look at the history of apologetics. And so 9-11 is as close as we have to what the Jews experienced with the fall of Jerusalem. Prior to the fall of Jerusalem, how many of you think that the Jews believe they're going to rise from the dead? Let me read some of the verses to you from before the fall of Jerusalem. Psalm 6-5, among the dead no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Psalm 115, 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. Genesis 3:19, the very curse, the anathema that God pronounced on humanity, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Isaiah 38, 10, and verse 18, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Do you think these verses are expecting a resurrection? It sure don't sound like it. In fact, if you listen to prophets such as Jonah 
If you listen to other prophets, such as Isaiah, or if you even listen to Jacob or other individuals, they always talk about how they know death is imminent, and they're going down to Sheol, and they say nothing about coming back up. They believed that this was all they had. This was the only life they got. You only live once, and it's like the game of Monopoly. Whoever dies with the most properties wins. All right? But things changed after the Babylonian exile. And scholars believe this is because the Jewish people adopted the religion that was predominant in the land they were exiled to, called Zoroastrianism. Now, what is interesting is how many know the Prophet Muhammad? The Prophet Muhammad came from this religion called Zoroastrianism. And he was an essential con man, a quintessential con man. And he was trying to combine all the religions. And he said that you could leave the Jews and the Christians alone, but you must kill the Zoroastrian. That was the only one that Muhammad said he must kill because their beliefs aligned very much with his, and he didn't want to be shown to be a con man. So what do you do? You cut out the middleman, pretend he never existed. And Zoroastrian was probably one of the first ancient religions that taught in a resurrection of the dead, that we did rise. And so some people believe that the Jews stole that, that they went to the land, that they learned about Zoroastrianism and said, I like that, I like that notion of resurrection of the dead. And so they stole that and took it for themselves. Now I find that very hard to believe, because my question would be this. Where did Zoroastrianism get the idea from? Can we just not believe that someone came to this conclusion on their own? This, do they have to steal it from somebody else? I mean, if Zoroastrianism could come to this conclusion of resurrection from the dead on their own, who says that Judaism can't? Right? You can't have a double standard. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. This is the most explicit verse on the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel says in Daniel 12, 2-3, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's explicit. Daniel is teaching that at the end of all days, there will be a resurrection from the dead, in which some will be rewarded and some will be chastised. Does that not sound like our New Testament? It does indeed. And so long before the Christians came along and said there was a resurrection of the dead, the Jewish people believed at the end of all days that God would raise everyone from the dead, some to rewards and some to punishment. Now, there were some who would dispute this verse. Notice in verse 3, what does it say? It says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. So some people say, well, they're not being raised from the dead. They're turning into stars. And you've probably seen this in movies, and you've probably seen this in books, where people become angels, right? People become stars. And that was a very popular belief in the Babylonian kingdom, that people did become stars. Now, from the plain reading of this verse, I'd like to ask you, does this verse say that they shall become stars or that they shall be like stars? We call it a simile. If I tell a sibling that they are like a pig, am I saying that they're literally a pig? No, I'm using a simile. Daniel is doing the same thing. He's equating our glorified state to that of a star. Now, why would he do that? There is nothing in this created order 
more glorious than when you look up at the skies and you see the stars shining above. What else would you compare a glorified state to than the glory of the skies that we see above? So I dispute the notion that the Jews believe that you become stars. I think the concept that they are trying to present here is that kings were often viewed as stars. They were often compared to stars because a king would give light to his people in the same way the stars in the sky give light to us. And friends, if you are a children of God, if you're a child of God, then you are an heir of God. You're co-heirs with Christ, which makes you royalty. And you are the light of the world. You are the city on the hill. You are that light that illuminates all to other people. Now, I want to go back now to 1 Corinthians 15, now that we have the background to that passage. It's very important to understand this because oftentimes we try to debate the resurrection. We talk about it in light of the 18th century understanding of philosophy. Now, raise your hand if you think Jesus was born in the 18th century and his apostles were 18th century philosophers. No, they weren't. They weren't dealing with an 18th century crowd. They were dealing with first century Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and Jews. By what I just told you, do you think the Greeks would love to hear this message? Is this good news, as we call it? Is this gospel to them? By no means. Do you think the Romans would love to hear this? No. Do you think the Egyptians? No. Who are the only people who would love to hear it? The very people who killed Jesus. Those are the very people, the only audience, who would have liked to hear this message. But notice in 1 Corinthians 15 that it says that Christ, that he died for sins. For sin. Not he died because of sin. It wasn't an accident that led to Jesus' death. There are some people who read the gospel and say, Jesus didn't know he was going to die. It caught him by surprise. I mean, look at the account. He doesn't say much in front of Pilate, does he? Only in the Gospel of John, written years later, does he have much to say. But if you notice the other ones, he's silent because he's in shock. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looks like Jesus is giving up hope. Jesus had no idea that he was going to be killed. Really? I want to read you a passage from Mark. Mark is our earliest gospel, right? And so it is more likely that a saying of Jesus is true if it's earlier rather than as later. For example, I don't believe the gospel of Peter, which talks about a talking cross and angels emerging from the tomb as high as mountains and Jewish leaders camping outside the tomb is real. I do not believe the gospel of Peter. I think it's fictitious. On the other hand, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says this to his disciples in Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Does Jesus know what he's doing, or was this an accident? Let me read you another verse. Mark 10, 32 through 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was planned. It was intentional. And it was not just intentional on the part of those who killed him. It was intentional on the part of God himself. Jesus didn't die because of sins. Because the Jewish leaders said he must. Jesus died for sin. He died for sin, as Paul said, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Paul is not looking for a proof text here. Oftentimes, Christians will try to jump to a text and say, well, this is the text he's talking about. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is saying that when Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures, the totality of the Old Testament, 
that the Old Testament is pointing to a Savior who will come to free us from the bondage of sin. That is what Paul says when he said that Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, one point that Jews will often bring up is this. Can you tell me one verse where it says the Messiah will die for sins? There isn't any. There isn't any in the single whole Bible. And Christians will immediately jump to Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the servant dies for the people's sins, right? Does Isaiah 53 say anything about the Messiah? Is it a messianic passage? No, it isn't. And so the Jews said that the Christians made up the whole thing, that Jesus really didn't die for the sins of the world, and that you can't prove it from the Scripture. And I think it is at this point that we must address some concerns when it comes to the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Does the resurrection prove that Jesus was the Messiah? Does it make him the Messiah, I should say? Some people in the early church thought it did, but no, it does not. And I mean to put it this way. If the thief on the cross rose from the dead, does that make him the Messiah? Lazarus rose from the dead. Why aren't you worshiping him as God? Right? Elijah raised a widow's son. Surely he must be the Messiah. Just because someone is raised from the dead, you shall be raised from the dead. Are we all going to be little messiahs and little gods? I mean, maybe if you are in the prosperity church, but I sure do not believe so. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he claimed to be God. The resurrection was the vindication of his claim. But if he did not claim anything, there is nothing to vindicate. Jesus claimed prior to his death that he was the Messiah, and so he would be known to be a liar if he simply died. So the resurrection is what vindicates his claim. But it is very foolish to tell a Jew that Jesus is God simply because he died. Because they'll ask you the question, did he ever claim to be God? So that's why it's important that we must understand these arguments that come from other sides. Another very popular argument comes from this very same passage where it says in verse 4, And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Well, he can only be raised if he was buried. He was buried somewhere. And some people will say this. It is foolish to think that the Romans would have buried Jesus. Jesus was accused of what? Stealing fruit? No. Did Jesus die because he scared a couple money changers in the temple? Is that why they killed him? What was the reason given for Jesus' crucifixion? He was called the king of the Jews. Only Rome could appoint a king. Do you think that Rome, who was notorious for crucifying people and leaving them on crosses for days, if not weeks, and then throwing them in a pit, would say, Oh, Joseph of Marathea, thank God you're here. Give him a splendid burial because I think he deserves it for committing high treason. That is silliness. In fact, when similarly, there was a man who rebelled against Octavian. Prior to his death, the man asked Octavian, the Roman emperor, please allow me to be buried. And do you know what Octavian said? The birds will soon settle that question. The Romans did not take kindly to traitors. Well, what about Pontius Pilate? Maybe the Romans weren't nice, but maybe this was a nice guy. Pontius Pilate was a brutal, brutal tyrant. We have accounts in Josephus of Pontius Pilate hiding soldiers amongst the mob and then beating the people to death over an issue where Pilate took money from the temple. We have other stories where Pilate was eventually kicked out of governorship because he sent soldiers to slaughter a bunch of Samaritans. Do you think this was a man who would say, well, this guy claimed to be king, but you know, 
maybe we should give him a great burial because it was just a misunderstanding. Does that really sound logical? This is a hard argument that people will use against Christians. The Christians, not knowing any better, will cave in at this point. But I say we need to look at the evidence more closely. Turn to Acts 13, 29. Acts 13, 29. Now, a question for all of you. Who buried Jesus? You can shout it out. Who buried Jesus? What's the name of the man who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, right? Now, Joseph did this, rough and told, because he came out as a Christian, right? Jesus was dead, and Joseph said, I'm standing by Jesus. I'm defying the council. I'm getting that body and burying. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' family didn't bury Jesus? Why was he given to Joseph? Why would Joseph appear now in the story? Well, I hate to be the one to tell you it, but all those notions that you've heard of Joseph Arimathea coming to get Jesus because he's rebelling against the council is a complete fiction. In fact, in the first earliest accounts, of Jesus' burial. There's no mention of Joseph Marathea. Let's look at Acts 13, 29. Who does Paul say buried Jesus? He says, talking about the council in verse 29, he says, and when they had carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. It doesn't say Joseph Marathea did. Who does it say did it? The they. Who's the they? The Jewish council. Now, this is strange. You might say, this is odd. Didn't the Jewish council condemn him? Weren't they the ones who wanted him killed in the first place? Well, the Jewish council was very legalistic, and one of the laws, according to the Jewish Mishnah, which is the traditional codes and laws for Jews, is that if the Sanhedrin condemned a man to death, it was their responsibility, no matter the cost, to see that he was buried. That was the law. Jews took burial very seriously. In fact, when the Romans crucified thousands of Jews outside Jerusalem, even if they were criminals, we have accounts of Jews running outside, taking down the bodies, and burying them. They were that serious. We even have an account in the Gospel of John where the Jews wanted to kill Jesus and to kill the thieves on the cross quicker, right? They wanted to break their legs because they knew the Sabbath was approaching. So we see even in our Gospels that the Jewish council cared greatly about keeping to the law as best as they could. And so in the case of Jesus, they knew that they had to get him buried because that's what the law demanded. Joseph of Arimathea was not defying the council's wishes when he asked for Jesus' body. He was doing what they instructed him to do. The council said he must be buried. Now there's one catch. The council had a law that if you were a criminal, you could not be buried in a place of honor. You had to be buried in a place of dishonor for one year, and then your family could come and take the body. That's why Joseph didn't just give the body to Mary. There was a law that said they had to wait a whole year. Well, Jesus only waited three days. That's a lot quicker than one year to be restored to his family. But notice what Joseph of Arimathea did. Did he bury Jesus in a place of dishonor? No, he didn't. In fact, the Bible talks about Nicodemus bringing spices for Jesus. And if you look at tradition, the amount of spices that Nicodemus brought for Jesus was worthy of the burial for a king. And so there was, to a certain extent, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did indeed defy the wishes of the council, but it was not against the council's wishes that Jesus should be buried. Why is this important, you might ask, the question of whether Jesus was buried? If Joseph of Arimathea, on his own, came to a cruel, vindictive Pontius Pilate and said, I would like his body, what are the odds that Pontius Pilate would say, yes, here it is, take it? Not very high. But who were the people who got Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus in the first place? The council. 
And Pontius Pilate knew that the best way to peace was cooperation with the Jewish authorities. And it's Passover season. Let's be realistic. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem. Should Pontius Pilate refuse to give in to these wishes, they might rise up in uproar because they cared greatly about burial. So Pilate, while he was cruel, he was not stupid. He was a good politician, but he wasn't from heaven. And so it is very reasonable to think that Pontius Pilate did allow for the burial of Jesus in order to appease the ruling authorities. So there have been some scholars who say that Jesus was merely cut up and fed to dogs, but I highly doubt that in the face of this evidence. If there is no burial, there is no resurrection. That's why I think understanding the evidence for the burial is very important to this conversation. Now, what follows the burial? Very simply, Paul says, and he was raised. Some of the three best words I've ever heard in the entire New Testament. He was raised. But in what way was Jesus raised? In what way? Was he raised spiritually or was he raised bodily? And I'd ask you this. Which of the Gospels narrates Jesus coming out of the tomb from his resurrection? None of them, in fact. Only apocryphal accounts talk about Jesus emerging from the tomb. None of them. So some people say, you have no proof that Jesus actually rose. It could have been anything. It could have been his body was stolen. It could have been he spiritually rose. And they'll even go so far as to say, that the apostles could preach that Jesus rose even if the body was still in the tomb. You might think that's weird. How could they do that? The body's right there. Well, how many of you know that uh, Saul received a strange visitation when he went to see the witch at Endor? Who came to visit him up from the land of the dead? Samuel. When Jesus was on the Mount of the Transfiguration, who came to visit him? Moses and Elijah. These are men of the past, men who were dead. It was not uncommon for dead people. I told you about the Iliad, where Patroclus comes back and he visited Achilles. It is not uncommon for people to say that people from the dead came back in a phantom state and visited them. But that wouldn't be extraordinary if the apostles were to go around saying, guys, great news, we had a phantom come back from the dead and talk to us. That would be no different than what Saul experienced at the wish of Endor. It's not good news at all. It's just old news. And so in the case of Jesus, the question is, did Jesus raise from the dead physically or spiritually? It's very important. And with Jews, remember, they believe that once you died, you stay dead until that last day. Apparently, Jesus didn't get that memo because the disciples were saying that he rose way before the last day. And so Jews would hate that. They would say that Jesus was going against God, that Jesus was going against the will of God. He wasn't waiting until the last day, and therefore we can't trust it because no one can raise from the dead until the last day. And Jesus just leapfrogged into the present. And so it's much simpler to believe that he rose spiritually from the dead. This is what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. This is what the Mormons teach, is that Jesus rose spiritually. Do you know that this is what the apostles believed at first? I remember looking at this. I remember wondering, did the apostles believe this? Notice, turn your Bibles to Luke 24. In Luke 24, verse 37... Jesus appears to his apostles. It says, starting in verse 36, And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw what? A spirit. The disciples were not stupid. They understood Jewish theology. 
They understood that a resurrection did not occur until the last day. They knew all the stories of the Old Testament. They knew the Iliad. They knew Homer. They knew that people appeared back as phantoms. And so when they saw Jesus from the dead, they didn't immediately conclude, thank goodness, he has risen indeed. They thought he was a spirit. But does the account stop there? No, it doesn't. Continuing on in verse 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Can a spirit eat food? No. Can a spirit be touched? We talked about this. Achilles reached out for Patroclus, and what happened? His hands went right through them. When Thomas reached out, when the apostles reached out for Jesus, what happened? They felt flesh and bone. Jesus had not been raised spiritually. He was flesh and blood standing right in front of them. And so, why did the apostles believe Jesus rose bodily? Well, another point I'd like to make is comes from Acts chapter 12. Peter was imprisoned by King Agrippa, who wanted to stamp out the church in order to impress the people. He killed James, he has Peter locked up, and now he's going to kill Peter. But what happens? An angel visits, right? An angel visits, the angel frees Peter, Peter returns to the Christians, he knocks on the door, the girl sees him, the girls, she goes and tells the others, and what do the others say? Praise be to God, Peter is here. They say, it is his angel. Strange passages in Acts 12, 15. It is his angel. Now, what does that mean, his angel? Is he talking about like guardian angels uh, that we see in old movies? No. Once again, the Jews believe that between your death and the resurrection, you existed in a phantom state, an angelic-like state. In fact, some Jews believe that Enoch and Moses, men of the past, turned into angels themselves. So how do we know that Jesus wasn't turned into an angel himself? How do we know that he wasn't existing in some angel form? Well, this was not, I can't falsify this. If the apostles claim that Jesus came back as an angel, they said Jesus came back as a spirit, can I prove them wrong? How can I prove them wrong? I can't prove that he didn't rise spiritually. But if they say his physical body is gone from the tomb and has risen again, can I prove that wrong? All I have to do is just go to the tomb and reproduce the body, right? So have you ever wondered why the Romans and the Jewish authorities just didn't do that? How come they didn't just go down to the tomb, take the body, and say, ladies and gentlemen, here it is? Why didn't they do that? In fact, the Jewish authorities, what do they say? The disciples have stolen the body. It's very interesting that they say that. I remember as a kid saying, the dog ate my homework. Something like that, right? Now, that's an excuse for why the homework isn't there. But it's evidence that the homework isn't there. And so when I say that someone stole the body, that's proof that the body isn't there. It's only an excuse for the absence of the body. So where is the body? Roman soldiers would not have taken a bribe. That was a very, very foolish story to make up because the penalty for sleeping on the job, the penalty for allowing it to happen, was death. You could offer me six billion dollars, but if the penalty is death, I'm not taking that bribe. I'd rather have my life. And it's very foolish to think that the Romans were just lollygagging outside the tomb, that they were asleep, that the apostles just walked by, moved the tomb, got the body, and ran off. That is foolishness. And so, Jesus' body is missing. 
Where did it go? Did Jesus rise spiritually? That is not what his followers taught. They taught that Jesus rose physically from the dead. And from that point on, they went around the world proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And how was that message received? Well, I'd like for you to think for a moment. Think for a moment if Islam turned out to be true. Imagine how disgusted you are at Islam right now, right? Mistreatment of women, jihad nowadays. What are the odds that you would convert to Islam? What would it take for you to convert to Islam? Take a great deal, wouldn't it? Do you know that people in the time of Jesus hated Jews? They thought they were superstitious. They thought the circumcision was disgusting. They thought they were a cowardly people. They just had so many riots, so many uprisings. They were bothersome. They hated Jews. Why then, in a few centuries, did they start worshiping one? Can you explain that to me historically? If the Christian church was in mass to convert to Islam, that would be precedent for a miracle. Why would so many Christians turn to Islam? I'd ask the same question. Why did so many pagans turn to a religion that they despise and hated? If they hate resurrection, what will it take for them to believe in one? It would take one. It would take a resurrection for them to believe in a resurrection. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Jesus. They would not believe in a resurrection unless it happened. And so what did God do? He gave them one. He gave them a resurrection that they could not refuse, that they could not disprove. And so within a few centuries, history says that 30 to 60 million people in the Christian empire who were formerly pagan became Christian. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power of resurrection. The Bible says that resurrection is foolishness to the Greeks, does it not? Because Greeks would despise the notion that they'd be in this body forever. If they despise that notion, then how is it they came to believe in it? Through the power of God. That is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so I agree with the Greeks to an extent that if it is that my soul leaves this body only to return to it after death, and go through the cycle again of torture and suffering. I'd say God is a cruel and vindictive puppet master. But does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, and does the Old Testament, New Testament teach that we're coming back to a corruptible body? No. We are coming back to a glorified one. We will never feel pain again. We will never feel sorrow again. No more suffering and no more tears. He will make all new. And when we return to this body, at the end of time, we will glorify God forevermore. Amen? Amen? Amen. So, friends, I think it is important when we have these discussions with people about the resurrection that we understand to take all these things in context. While many people want to discuss the 18th century and what people believed then, we ought to talk about the first century and what people believed then. Did people want a resurrection? No, they didn't. But they got one, and the power of the Holy Spirit transformed their lives and that they worshiped a resurrected individual. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And had he not been risen, I would not be a Christian today. If I did not believe there was evidence for Christianity, I might as well go and live my life doing whatever I wanted. But knowing that he has been risen, I have hope that I too will be risen. I too will be resurrected to this body forevermore. Amen. Now, let's say a quick prayer at the end here. Dear Lord, I thank you for showing up in this place here today, Lord. 
thank you for your presence. I thank you, Lord, for your gospel, for your word. I thank you for your power. Lord, I pray um, today that there's anyone here who has any doubts that they would talk to someone, Lord, that they would search the scriptures and know that you are God and you are God alone. Lord, we don't believe in the Muslim God. He is not God. Lord, we don't believe in the Hindu gods. They are not God. For us, there is one Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that's enough. We don't need to add 200 more. One is good enough for me. Lord, I'm looking forward to that day in which I will finally be free of pain and suffering forevermore and be in your presence and finally get to meet you face to face and be known face to face, Lord. I thank you for that. I do not believe, Lord, that I am believing in a fiction. I do not believe that this is a myth. I believe that you are real, that there was a man named Jesus Christ who walked the sand of Palestine, that he did die, not because of sin, but he died for sin, and that he did it in accordance with the scriptures. I believe he was buried, Lord. I believe that he was raised, and I believe that you were the one who raised him, and that he is God, and that he is our Savior. And I love him, Lord, and I can't wait to see him. I thank you for this church, Lord. I pray that we remain strong in this season of COVID. I pray that your power might be displayed, Lord, and that you'd show the people just who you are. But even if you don't, because sometimes I get caught up in that, Lord, even if you don't stop COVID, even if you don't heal the patients, even if I get sick and I have sores and I die from it, Lord, I will still praise you, and so will we, because we don't believe in you and put our faith in you because good things happen to us. We believe in you because you are God, and that's enough for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for being you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.